Good evening. A portrait of a president finally gets unveiled. A growing political crisis in Pakistan. A former prime minister is accused of terrorism. McConnell stays silent. The natural history of COVID and decreasing life expectancy in the United States. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. President Joe Biden hosted former President Barack Obama and Michelle Obama Wednesday for the unveiling of their official White House portraits. Barack and Michelle, it's my honor to invite you both to the stage for the unveiling of your official portraits. Come on up. There we go. The photorealistic painting of Barack Obama is the work of Robert McCurdy and the painting of Michelle Obama by artist Sharon Sprung. Obama is dressed in a black suit with a gray tie against a white backdrop. In First Lady Obama's oil painting portrait, she appears in an off-the-shoulder turquoise gown. The White House portraits join a collection of presidential images beginning with George Washington, although Obama's was added late because former President Trump had refused to hold the ceremony. Obama likened the sweep of presidential portraits to the passing of the political baton to the next president. I've always described the presidency as a relay race. You take the baton from someone, you run your leg as hard and as well as you can, and then you hand it off to someone else, knowing that your work will be incomplete. The portraits hanging in the White House chronicle the runners in that race. The Obamas were warmly welcomed by Biden, who was Obama's vice president. It's not clear whether Biden will host an event for Trump when his portrait is ready, with the bad blood brewing between the two men who might face off again in 2024, a joint ceremony to unveil the portrait is considered unlikely. In international news, the former Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, toppled by Parliament five months ago in a rare no-confidence vote, apparently has the confidence of many Pakistanis. On Tuesday, he addressed 25,000 supporters in the northwestern city of Peshawar, and Khan says he's organizing a mass march on Pakistan's capital city to force the government of Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif to hold a snap election that Khan might win. Khan's speeches have been banned from TV stations by the government, supposedly because of comments he made about the military's role in his ouster. Khan has also accused Washington of having a role. A professor of religion and world politics at the University of Lahore is Junaid Ahmad. He says Khan was forced from office for his refusal to criticize Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Israel's actions against Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. It really resembled all of the markers of what we call a regime change operation, supported by Washington, a whole bunch of local collaborators that include virtually the entire corrupt political class, the family dynasties that call themselves political parties, most importantly, the chief of army staff. Those familiar with Pakistan know that the military has always played the most important role in Pakistan's political life. And so all of these characters got on board to effectively oust Imran Khan from power for a variety of reasons. Was there a number one reason? Khan unfortunately landed in Moscow the day that Russia did the invasion in Ukraine. So he got a lot of pressure from Western governments to immediately denounce his host while he was there, which he did not. That was one thing. The other thing was his very vehement opposition to what India is doing in Kashmir. But perhaps most importantly, as opposed to many other Muslim governments 
particularly in the Gulf, like UAE, Saudi Arabia, etc. He was going against the tide of what you can call normalization or improving relations with Israel. He unequivocally said that he will not normalize relationship with Israel until there's Palestinian self-determination. So it could be that last point may have been one of the most important factors in Western powers, particularly the United States, Israel, the Gulf regimes, uh, wanting him out. What about domestically? The transition from military rule to civilian rule has not been a blessing for Pakistan. It's been just more of the same in terms of elites plundering and pillaging the country. Khan came to power in 2018 offering an alternative to the two-party duopoly that has existed. The two main political parties are the Pakistan People's Party of the Bhutto Zardari clan and the Sharif. The younger brother, Shabazz Sharif, is now the prime minister. And it just so happens these two political parties are the richest families in the country. So politics for them was about making money. So Khan came into power because of a variety of factors, COVID, his own mistakes and limitations, wasn't able to do much. But surprisingly, after he was ousted, it's very visible to all of us that he still remains incredibly popular in the country. Is he being charged with terrorism? This incident was of the government apprehending and then not just detaining, but torturing effectively the chief of staff of Imran Khan. And so Imran Khan in a speech simply said that he's going to take up cases against the police director general of Islamabad. All of this shows the desperation of the regime, which is so unpopular that they cannot even show their faces in public right now. (laughs) All right. Anything you'd like to add? As I look at my crystal ball right now, what we'll see, this is the first time in our country's history that the majority of the armed services themselves are behind a civilian, Imran Khan, not behind their chief of army staff. It's a very interesting political moment. The question is, will this government, which is entirely illegitimate, what they call here imported government, will they hold fresh elections? And when will that happen? Khan is doing it almost, almost daily protests, rallies in every city in the country to put pressure on this government. So a whole confluence of factors could push this government to finally concede to doing that when the point of kind of its illegitimacy is just so obvious and visible that they just simply cannot sustain the current order. Junaid Ahmad is professor of religion and world politics at the University of Lahore. The former cricket star turned Islamist politician Imran Khan faces terrorism charges for allegedly threatening police and a judge at a rally last month in Islamabad. Khan sharply criticized the authorities for having arrested a close aide, and he could face several years in prison under Pakistan's 1997 anti-terrorism law. And in national news, on Wednesday, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell sidestepped multiple questions about former President Donald Trump's alleged handling of classified documents. Yeah, I, I don't really have any comments on this this whole in, investigation that's been dominating the news for the last month. I think we're following it like all of you are. Later in the day, McConnell released a statement reading, the country deserves a thorough and immediate explanation of what led to the events of Monday, demanding answers from Attorney General Garland and the Department of Justice. Meanwhile, 
Former Trump strategist Steve Bannon will surrender to authorities in New York on Thursday on fraud charges stemming from a scheme to raise funds for a section of a border wall between Mexico and the United States, alleging he siphoned off more than $1 million for personal expenses from the We Build the Wall fundraising effort. In 2020, Bannon was convicted of contempt of Congress and was later pardoned by President Trump. In related news, President Biden has been fitting the MAGA crowd that supports Trump into his stump speeches, alleging the amorphous movement of Trump acolytes is a threat to democracy. Biden has come under fire by Republicans as divisive, but White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says that's not the case. It wasn't divisive. The way that we saw this speech uh, is that he was talking to majority of the country who agree that we have to protect our democracy, who agree that we have to protect our freedom, who agree that we have to protect our rights. And the point of the speech was that he wanted to really point to an inflection point, an inflection time that we were, we were in at this, in this time in our country. He also asked for people to come together. It didn't matter if you were a Republican or independent or a Democrat. You don't have to look further than January 6th of 2021 to see what the attack was uh, on our democracy. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. In news from Capitol Hill, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced today a quick vote for the Democrats on a bill to protect same-sex marriage, forcing the issue into the public spotlight before the midterm elections. The MAGA rep Republicans are taking over the Republican Party, and they've made it abundantly clear they're not satisfied with repealing Roe. So when some Republicans say, oh, a vote's unnecessary, it won't happen, they said the same thing about Roe. And here's where we are. So we had a very good conversation today in our caucus about marriage equality. We all want to pass this quickly. The Democrats need at least 10 GOP votes to make the requisite 60 needed to pass a major bill that would make it filibuster-proof. The Senate push comes after the House passed legislation in July to protect same-sex marriage with support from 47 House Republicans. In more national news, the White House admitted Wednesday there are worsening racial disparities in reported cases of monkeypox, even as officials say they're optimistic about a decline in cases of the communicable virus and an uptick in vaccinations against the infection. The U.S. leads the world with infections, with more than 21,000 cases reported, with men accounting for about 98% of cases, and men who said they had recent sexual contact with other men, about 93% of cases. The White House coordinator for the monkeypox outbreak is Bob Fenton. He says the government is striving to reduce any stigma associated with the disease. The core work that we've done to reach out to people of color really begins with the fact that we've made vaccine accessible. But we also have all of these equity interventions that include these large events that have been frankly wildly successful with thousands of vaccines that went to the community. The low-hanging fruit is done. The folks who are early adopters for this vaccine have gotten it, and now we're really on to the next level, which is making sure that, that everyone who needs it gets it. Black people are making up a growing percentage of monkeypox infections, nearly 38% at the end of August, up from a quarter early in the outbreak. In related news, the United States is launching an ambitious plan to vaccinate Americans with the new bivalent COVID vaccine that targets the recent Omicron strain. A research assistant at the Ariadne Lab, part of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Health, is Benji Renton. He says this is the third major vaccine push for COVID, and he says we've learned a lot. 
I think it really shows the importance of investing in the vaccine delivery and access strategy, you know, bringing vaccine to not only mass vaccination sites and, and pharmacies, most people will probably get their booster from a pharmacy and millions of doses have already been shipped out to larger and smaller pharmacies around the country, but also bringing vaccine to community events or other different ways to reach vulnerable populations and minority populations. I think a lot of that is incredibly important. And I think, as you mentioned, we really need to do that to stave off, you know, high levels of hospitalizations during the winter. Uh, we really need to do that in, in a matter of weeks. And so I think what you'll see over the next couple of weeks is a clear ramping up of a lot of those uh, vaccine delivery strategies and, and using different locations to ensure that people are, are able to find this booster and are able to access it pretty readily in the community. Is there a, a minimum number of people who have to be vaccinated in a country like the United States? Like, does it have to be 50% or 70% or 90% to be effective? I'm not sure if there's um, sort of a specific number or, or you know, we, we talked about earlier in the pandemic, this sort of herd immunity or herd protection threshold. I think what is important to understand is that any person who has immunity contributes to this immunity wall and, and you, you know the immunity wall can be built through vaccination through prior infection and, and really trying to contribute to protection in the community and vaccination is certainly the safest way to do that any people who receive this booster that makes us one step closer to higher levels of protection which not only benefits the individual you know personal protection against severe disease against death and protection against infection but also protection in, in the wider community as well the opposition as sort of building has been built for a while against the the uh, requirement of a lot of agencies and companies to get vaccinated and a lot of people are f fighting against that do you think that uh, requiring people mandating vaccination has been effective what these vaccine mandates do is they increase the vaccination rate with a limited, you know, sort of smaller, very small consequences. You know, we've seen that, that very few people will resign over a vaccine mandate, for example. And what vaccine mandates, particularly in workplaces, in schools, in colleges and universities, it increases the vaccination rate in those communities. And it provides a baseline level of protection in the community against severe disease. We all know that it is lurking out there and still dying from this disease. We are still seeing high levels of severe disease and particularly death in this community. The seven-day moving you know, average of deaths now is, is hovering right around 350 people a day. And a lot of those deaths are preventable um, you know, through vaccines, through uh, treatments like Paxlovid, um, through masking, through other community interventions. And so I think you know, we still have a, a fair amount to go when it comes to lowering community death rates and lowering you know, particularly hospitalization rates. Uh, and you know, while this disease We've certainly made great strides to protect against a lot of severe disease, such as vaccines and boosters. There are still a lot of infections out there, and particularly a lot of those infections still do lead to severe disease. We still have a long way to go in protecting people from those worst consequences of COVID. Benji Renton is a research assistant at the Ariadne Lab, part of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Health. The news welcomes science popularizer Dr. Rob Swanda, a biochemist with a Ph.D. from Cornell University. Dr. Swanda explains the science behind the new vaccine boosters. One thing with the new COVID vaccine I like to reiterate to people is that think of it like a software upgrade. 
If you have a phone every couple months, it tells you you need to upgrade your apps or you need to upgrade the hardware in order to deal with new things that are coming in technology. And that's exactly what's happening with these boosters is that we kind of need to give our immune system a better picture of what the mutated form of SARS-CoV-2 looks like. And that is in the form of the Omicron-specific mutated form or the BA.5, which is what this specific variant bivalent vaccine booster is targeting. How come or how do we know that there wouldn't be a new version of this virus that would come out and render this uh, vaccine ineffective? That's an excellent point, and it's honestly probably likely. We know that the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the way that it works is that it carries its genetic information on RNA. And when we think about our own genetic information, that's on DNA. So DNA is super more stable related to RNA. So RNA is very likely to have more mutations in the future. And so this is typically something that we're going to have to adjust for and something that we're going to have to not only look for additional types of boosters, but maybe try to figure out a better way to stop transmissions that can occur from person to person. Give me some examples. There's some different types of vaccine strategies that are being tested right now, such as a nasal vaccine. So a nasal vaccine is like an aerosol spray that you would have up your nose, and it targets a different set of the immune system called mucosal immunity. And what that's doing is essentially stopping the virus from actually moving from one person to another. And that's something that we can't do with the current vaccines we have in our tool belt right now. But just like when you build a house, you need a lot of different tools to get that job done. You're not building that house with one tool. So we need to put more tools in our toolbox. We have some now. We know what is effective, but we're constantly improving and constantly looking for those better options. Yeah, I guess maybe this I'm going to go with the big question because you're the science educator. (laughs) Why are viruses uh, such a pain in the neck? Why can't we figure out a way to knock them down the way, and I know there's problems with bacteria, but we've knocked them down to a large extent. How come we can't knock down viruses? Why is it our science not able to handle it? Yeah, viruses are super tricky, and there's debates before on whether viruses are even considered an organism or not, because they're really just made up of a small amount of proteins, and they're not replicating themselves. So it's not like a bacteria who can go from one bacteria to two in its own setting, a virus actually needs to infect something in order to make more of itself. So our cells or an animal cells essentially become a virus making factory. So they're hijacking our machinery. And that's something that they've become super efficient at because they need to in order to survive. That's the virus's entire job is to make it into a cell produce a lot more of itself, and then get out there and infect more people to repeat the process. Now, typically, those viruses are not trying to kill their hosts because killing their hosts essentially means they have nowhere left to replicate. So we're kind of at this fine balance of better understanding how the viruses work and what they're doing inside of our bodies in order to better combat and make strategies that we can use to fight them off, whether that be like antiviral therapies or measures in place to actually stop the infection from even happening. A lot of discoveries yet to happen. 
so many. Dr. Rob Swanda is a biochemist with a PhD from Cornell University. He produces educational videos on science topics. You can get them on YouTube. And finally, since COVID struck, life expectancy in the United States has been in an alarming freefall, with Native Americans and black people bearing the brunt. Between 2019 and 2021, the average life expectancy of all Americans has dropped from 79 to 76. A professor of health policy at the University of California at San Francisco is Jim Kahn. He's also an editor at Health Justice Monitor. He says the United States is in a crisis. He traces to a broken health insurance system. What's remarkable in the last couple of years is that life expectancy in the United States has dropped by three years over the last two years. Uh, we were at 79. We're now at 76. This is the, both the absolute number and the, the drop are both unique to the United States among wealthy countries. A couple of things going on there. One is that we handled COVID less adeptly than other countries, and so we had a bigger COVID pandemic. Secondly, the lack of insurance. Uh, we just published a study was associated with a roughly one-third increase in the mortality rate from COVID, and that has to do with delayed access to care and uh, delayed uh, control of spread. And then, um, you know, in addition, just in general, our country's uninsurance and underinsurance, meaning having high deductibles and other financial barriers to care, combine to cause um, lots of additional deaths every year. This is a problem that no other wealthy country has. Everyone else has universal coverage with good insurance, and we're the only country that doesn't seem to believe in that. Mm -hmm. That's the main cause of this, you think? Insurance. Well, I think that the, the drop in, in lifespan or drop in longevity is largely due to insurance problems. As I said, it, it exacerbated the COVID mortality. There's lots of good research from around the world, including right here in the United States, that shows that locations that have a higher number of primary care doctors and therefore doc people have an easier time developing a relationship with the primary care doctor, they have lower mortality. So, and the other thing is that having insurance these days is no longer a guarantee that you don't face big costs to see the doctor. People have deductibles of three to $5,000 before the insurance starts paying. That's true in New York. It's true in California where I am. It's true around the country. So the problem is a lot of people remain uninsured and a lot of people have substandard insurance. And that's, that substandard insurance is true for private insurance. It's especially true for Medicaid, which is a second-rate insurance system for the poor. Um, certainly in California, the amount that doctors receive to see someone who has Medicaid, health insurance for the poor, much less than they get paid if they see someone who has private insurance. So that means that a lot of doctors here don't take Medicaid. And then people with Medicaid may not be able to find a doctor. The um, health and morbidity statistics for the United States, it was up, 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 up. What happened? Why aren't people upset about it? There are two phenomena that explain this. One is this sense of helplessness that people feel like, what, you know, what more can we do? What more can I do? And that's fed by the second item, which I think is uh, best termed obfuscation. That is, 
we know people have, like me in health policy, and we know how other countries handle health insurance, and we know that they spend less and they do a much better job insuring people. But the people here who make lots of money, lots of profits, lots of high salaries from our broken insurance system, they basically don't talk about that. They instead talk about issues that are just not important. They confuse everyone. Right. They obfuscate, yeah. and people don't realize that the answer is lying right in front of them. Jim Kahn is a professor of health policy at the University of California, San Francisco. Health Science Monitor notes the cause in the drop in life expectancy has been COVID and chronic diseases like diabetes with accidental drug overdoses also a contributing factor. And that's the news for Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. The news is produced, written, and anchored by myself, Paul DiRienzo. You can get this podcast from pauldirienzo.com, your favorite podcast source, or from SoundCloud. Search the news with Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.